we're all familiar with IKEA, I assume, I hope, at this point in our lives. Um, IKEA is great. Let me explain to you. I've tried to convince IKEA to sponsor us. We'll, we'll be part of their catalog, you know, different branding. They, they, they're, they're warming up to that. Um, but I'll, I'll, let me tell you why I think for many of us in this room, IKEA is great. IKEA is great for Shalom Bayis. IKEA is great for dating. Fantastic. It's fantastic. First of all, I don't know in Kotsarts. I don't know if I've ever really been to IKEA in Kotsarts. But um, IKEA in is great. It's open. It's relaxed. Sun, sun or rain doesn't matter. There's soft serve ice cream. There's Mahadran Swedish meatballs. Like, it's fantastic. There's babysitting also. It's it's much fantastic. Um, you also get to like live in a bit of a fantasy world. Like you walk around and you think, well, this looks great. And I could live like that. You don't realize that like I have more than three books. And they're like, it doesn't really fit with the shelves, but <laughs> it's a fantasy world. It's great. You also get to, you know, experience the other person. Size, how big of a shelf do you want, what, what, type, what type of bed are you looking for, couches, fold out, you know, colors, muted tones, darks, lights, and then you get to see finances. It's fantastic. What's the budget? Can you stick to a budget? It's great for Shalombites. And then the best part. When the furniture comes to your house. This is where really the Shalom Bice kicks in. <laughs> First of all, you get to see how a person interacts with the box. You have that guy that like, rips open the box. You know, all the things are thrown everywhere. The, the styrofoam things are just thrown everywhere. Then you have the person that carefully takes it apart, opens up the instructions, lines up all, all, all the pieces, counts them out beforehand. You learn a lot about a person. <coughs> and then you actually start to get to building. That's when the real Shalom Bice comes out. Can you work together as a team? Pressured environment. And then, you know, you've been working on this, um, you know, these drawers for like two hours, and you realize you've done it backwards. <laughs> but it was her fault that you did it backwards, and are you going to say something? This is like real, you know, the recipe of Shalom Bais. It's all in Ikea. Um, so, some of us maybe have had that frustration of building Ikea and rebuilding it, take it apart. So why don't we just get someone else to build it? They have such a thing. Hire someone to hiring someone to build IKEA. No, we know some people. I will confess that um, I have hired some people to build IKEA things in my life. I will confess that. I will also proudly, you know, c- confess. I don't know what to ca- call it. That I've also built many IKEA things. The drawers, done it. So, I think there's a there's a phenomenon. I saw an article once from Rabbi Sachs, where he clued me in. So what in the, world, in the world of psychology is called the Ikea effect. I don't know if everyone's familiar with this. The Ikea effect, they, what they studied was, how much is a person willing to pay, or would they value, the piece of furniture they built themselves versus someone else built? And people, on average, value the thing they built 60% higher. 60% higher for the thing I built than it was built by someone else. That, that's the Ikea effect. So... Says Rabbi Sachs, what does that key effect t- tell us? It tells us that there's an element of being an active participant, an active creator in life. And ultimately, when we engage in the work and we're actively involved in the creation, we're more satisfied with the work. Didn't say it's always better. You know, the guy who builds that key shelves comes out straighter. But it's better, and we are elevated as people because of that. That's what Rabbi Sachs says. 
in the beginning of our Pasha, Pasha's Truma. Why is it called Pasha's Truma with donations? Because he says, Lashon Truma is to be uplifted. That we are uplifted as people when we engage actively in creating the Mishkan. It's not just, you know, Mishkan comes down from Shemayim. We actively engage in it. By actively engaging it, we ourselves are elevated people. Up, up, until, up until this point, says Rabbi Sachs, Kali Israel have been passive participants. Baruch Hu has been the active player. Right? Kali Israel cries out to Kodesh Baruch Hu. Hashem brings the Makos, Hashem does a Geula, creates <coughs> Yamsuf. Kali Israel has been passive. <coughs> but but that, that changes. And he says this is one of the profound moments of Jewish history where Kodesh Baruch Hu limits himself, holds himself back. It's profound act of Tzimtzum, I think, is, is his Lashon. And, he sa- and Hashem says, I'm going to let you do it. You take over. You be in charge of, of building the, the, the Mishkan. We find this elsewhere. Sosa Choshen. Sosa is one of the fantastic, fantastic svarim of classic yeshiva um, discussions. In, in, in his introduction here, he discusses the concept of Loba Shemaimi. You know, the Gemara tells us based on the Pasuk that Torah is not in heaven. And therefore, the Gemara says, even if we have an indication of the heavenly psak on a certain issue, we know how Karsh Baruch would pass on this issue, doesn't matter. Irrelevant. We pass it based on what, 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 what we think is the correct psak. And the Gemara tells us, even if we're wrong, we're off. We're, we know Hashem says Asr, and we say Mutter, vice versa, doesn't matter. We go with our, with, 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 with our psak. <coughs> so the Ksos explains this and he says that essentially what happened was Kosh Baruch gave us the Torah and he gave us the rules here's the guide here's how you use it there are valid ways of interpreting and invalid ways of interpreting Rabbi Shmuel, etc but once, I do, once, I, once I've given you the raw material of the Torah and I've given you the rule book go ahead it's up to you now <coughs> and that means Hashem's comfortable Whatever that means, but with a quote unquote distortion of the halacha of the of the Torah from what he would want, from what he would suggest, and what we do, as long as we're following the rules, if we're not playing within the rule book, so then it's totally invalid. This is another example of Hashem holding himself back and saying, "I want you, Klal to be active participants. Torah is evolving. Torah is you know unfolding." Always chidushim, and I want you to be in the driver's seat for that. And he says that's what we say in the morning. Asher uh, uh, um Sorry, if I can find it very quickly. He says this is what we say in the morning in the in, in, in the in the brachas. We say we describe what Barakur has given us the Torah. What does it mean he's given us the Torah? Right, Nasulana Torah Ms. What does it mean he's given us the Torah? It's given it over to us. You're in the driver's seat. We're active participants. That's what Hashem wants. He wants us to be active participants. <clears throat> I think that this idea of being active participants in the unfolding of Torah is certainly one of the core principles um, in terms of educational philosophy that she was founded on. That's, that's what we're aiming for. When you're a student, when you're a teacher, when you're a parent, when you're just someone who has a little more knowledge and you see someone struggling, you see someone messing up, they put the calm in the wrong place, they misspelled something, they mispronounced something, so what's the natural inclination? You step in let me help you out. Because then you'll know. Why should you say the wrong thing? Why should you do? Why should you want to put one before? Let me just help you out. 
But if you're just constantly spoon-feeding, spoon you're ultimately robbing the student, the child, your friend, whoever it is, of the opportunity to grow. Because if you don't make, if you don't put in your own effort, well, you'll never make a kidney on it. You'll never make it your own. And I think that's what we're trying to do here. We're providing space, we're providing opportunities to, you know, we, we've all had that feeling, maybe today, maybe five minutes ago, of, you know, it would probably be easier and more pleasurable to bang my head on the table than it would be to continue learning the Gemara. Like, that's happened to us sometimes. Like, we, we've experienced that. Yeah, we, we, can, we can admit it, it's okay. But that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be active participants. Rabbi Sachs subsequently, I don't know if he published it or they, or you know, whoever the they is, published this in a book. With what they call, with, it's called um, Judaism's life-changing ideas. So every parish is a life-changing idea. Parish Truma, I believe, this is the life-changing idea, active participation. But I think we've, we've we just described in terms of academics, in terms of Talmud Torah. But I think it's, it's, it stretches well beyond that. Salvechik gave a drasha. Um, in Yiddish and Hebrew, they called the Kol Didofek. It's fascinating, it's a must-read, um, whether you agree with it or not, it's, we can talk about it separately, but it's a must-read. There he discusses um, history, Zionism, Holocaust, State of Israel. Very fascinating. In English, one of the versions they translated here as Fading Destiny. And at the beginning, of Salvechik, you know, with his PhD in, um, in philosophy, Defines his terms. Before you start to, to discuss anything, you have to define your terms. What does he mean by fate? What does he mean by destiny? So he says, Fate is an existence of compulsion, an existence of the type described by, by the Mishnah, against your will do you live out your life. As um, He says, you're, you're, you're the subject of the forces of the environment into which the individual has been cast by providence without any prior consultation. The eye of fate has the image of an object. Fate means you are an object. Things are happening around you, and I'm just uh, being moved by those forces. That's what he defines as fate. In contrast, says Rav Salvechik, I can find it, I'll read it to you. He says, The motto of eye of destiny is, against your will you are born, and against your will you will die, but you live of your own free will. Man is born like an object, dies like an object, but possesses the ability to live like a subject. That's the difference between fate and destiny, says Rosalvichik. Fate means it's just happening to me. There are outside forces. Destiny means I know there are outside forces, but I'm going to work to, to create a new reality. I'm not going to accept the reality, the status quo, as it is. And says Rosalvichik, that's what defines Kal Yisrael as a people, and what defines us and what should guide us as individuals. I think this is incredibly important. How do you deal with difficult situations? Do you say, well, I'm resigned to the fact this is what it is? Or should I say, I recognize this is what it is, but it doesn't have to be like this. On a national level, on Sunday, most of us in this room um, experienced or saw firsthand horrors, destruction from Simchastara. So what's the reaction to that? Do we have a fate reaction to that or a destiny reaction to that? A fate reaction would be to say, terrible, nebach, so sad. Okay, I have to come to grips with it somehow. I have to fit it into my hashkafa, and that's it. A destiny reaction to that is, I recognize, I acknowledge this is what happened. 
But who says I have to accept it as a reality? No. In the news, Baruch Hashem, two days ago, hostages are saved. That's a demonstration of a destiny type of approach. The fate type approach would be so sad that the hostages were taken. What can we do? It's fate. There are outside forces operating. We're just objects. A destiny type of approach is let's be active. Let's let's actively work to change the reality. And sometimes we're not going to be successful in changing the reality. But what's our attitude towards it? We have this on individual levels as well. The Chavrus is not going so well. He, he's too early. He's too late. He schmoozes too much. He doesn't schmooze enough. He doesn't. He, he needs me to translate too much. He takes over too much. So what do you say? It's fate. Uh, what am I supposed to do? That's the Chavrusa. Maybe I can change it. Now we're not saying what changing means. But who says I have to accept it? Roommates work the same way. He gets up too early, he gets up too late. He wants to schmooze too much, he doesn't want to schmooze at all. He's too messy, he's too neat, it makes me embarrassed because I'm messy. Okay, so so what? Accept the reality? This is what it is? Or maybe something different? In, in every aspect of our lives. Sheer. Sheer's too hard. She's not hard enough. I don't feel it's right for me. I feel like, you know, it's not going well. So what, what, do, I, what do I do? I'll be sad, be depressed, I'll wallow on my own self-pity. It's fate. What am I supposed to do? I could change. Again, what does changing mean? Changing can mean all sorts of different things. Maybe I belong in a different shear. Maybe my attitude needs to change. I acknowledge these are the facts, but maybe my attitude just needs to change. have this in marriage. Every marriage has rough patches, difficulties along the way. So what do you say? This is, this, is, this is my marriage. This is what it means married life for me. I'm not saying this is what married life means for everyone, but this is what it is for me. Or do you say, this is what my marriage is today. Who says this is what my marriage has to be tomorrow? That's the difference between a fate attitude and a destiny attitude. I think it was... I'm trying to do the math. Probably 40 years ago. Um, Michael Jordan's rookie season. Maybe 41 years ago at this point. Um, Michael Jordan was recognized as a tremendous talent and gem on the basketball court, but more specifically as a marketing commodity. Michael Jordan was a tremendous marketing commodity. And Nike, or in Hebrew, Nike, um, Right, that's the that's the translation. Um, Mike, Mike, Michael Jordan, Nike recognized Michael Jordan as a marketing commodity, and they branded it, and they created um, she was called Air Jordans. I'm sure, some of us had Air Jordans, maybe have Air Jordans still. Maybe we're wearing them right now. And every year, the chap was every year they would come up with a new Air Jordan. So you always have to, if you want to be in, you have to buy the buy the new one every year. It's brilliant marketing. All the branding campaigns, be like Mike, is, you know, fantastic marketing. At the very beginning, Mamish's first or second year playing the NBA, they came up with the, the new Air Jordans, and the NBA didn't like them. They didn't fit with the color scheme. It didn't match everyone else on, on the court. And the NBA said, Michael Jordan, you can't wear those shoes. So they said, I want to, I'm sponsored. So they said, you can't wear them. $5,000 fine every night if you wear them. Michael Jordan went back to Nike and said, I can't wear them, $5,000. I know you're endorsing me and paying me to do this, but why should I pay $5,000 to get... It doesn't make any sense. 
So what's your attitude then? Fate, uh, fate attitude is, okay, we tried. Okay, we'll have to redesign the shoe. We'll have to get, maybe, maybe we'll go back to the drawing board. Nike had a destiny type attitude. Nike said, we'll pay the fine. Brilliant marketing. So what's the best marketing? Every night on national television, Michael Jordan getting fined because he's wearing the shoes. <laughs> everyone, everyone, you know, what sells, the, what books sell the most? The ones that are in Kherim, the ones that that, that, that that arouse the most controversy. So Michael Jordan shoes every night arouse controversy. So my, so Nike said five thousand dollars is nothing. We'll sell it so fast. It's a destiny attitude. Why accept the reality as it is? Oftentimes, those that have been with me in in Shear in the afternoons, particularly in the lower Shear, we often speak about Sin Gemara. You know, there are assumptions made. Every question is based on assumptions. Gemara is based on assumptions. Are we accepting the premise? Are we denying the premise? That's fate versus destiny. You can accept it, you can deny it. This is the message that Akash Baruch is communicating to us in the building of the Mishka. If you look at Rashi in the Sixth Parsha, Rashi says that the, the middle chunk of Sefer Shemos is actually written out of order, chronologically. According to Rashi, Machlokas amongst the Rishonim, but Rashi believes that we had Parshas Yisrael, Parshas Mishpatim, those were our Harsinai Parshas, and then immediately following that, we have Parshas Kisisa, the Chet Egel. Kalisro has this high of the Harsinai experience, then this low, they build a golden calf. As a result of that, as a reaction to that, as a tikkun, as part of the Chuvu process, Hashem says, build a Mishkan. Ah, why, why doesn't it present like that in the Chomashkei? That's another Shemus. But particularly if you, think, if you think about this from the perspective of Rashi, what's the Kosh communicating to us? You just had a tremendous Arsina experience, and then you had a low. You had a, you had a Chet Ego. Now how do we feel when we, when we have a Chet Ego, or we have our own personal Chet Ego? There's disappointment, there's sadness, there's embarrassment, there's, and we've all been there on some level. So now what do you do? To accept the reality. This is where I am. We, we, we had a tremendous opportunity. We had, we had the Ksarim from Harsinai, and we blew it. That's, that, that would be our fate approach. Kosh Baruch says, build a Mishkan. Actively engage in the process. Lift yourselves up. Truma. Change the reality. You, you don't have to be there anymore. We can't, we can't whitewash. We can't say you didn't, didn't happen. It happened. But who says you have to stay there? You can, you can move beyond that. That's, that's denying, that's you know, breaking out of the mold and not just accepting it for what it is. So Vechik, in one of his Chuva Drushes, asks, I think, a very strong question in the Rambam. Kavarza Machokis, in Sanhedrin, um, is, is, is the Geula, is the whole process, uh, the redemptive process, Mashiach, etc., Dependent on Kali Yisrael doing tshuva or not, and the Rambam paskins Ein Yisrael Nigalin Ela B'Tshuva that in order for Geula to take place, we must do tshuva. Fine, okay, no problem. That makes sense to us. We've heard that one before. So they says, let's put that aside for a second. Let's look at another Rambam. The Rambam we know delineates thirteen principles of faith. Yud Gimel Ikari Muna. One of those says the Rambam says Rav Salvechik is to believe in the coming of Mashiach. He come any day. Says with Salvation, hold on, how do you put these two together? Mashiach come at any day, the Gula could come at any time, and it's dependent on Tshuva. Well, says with Salvation, what if we don't do Tshuva? Well, if we don't do Tshuva, then won't come. So how could you how could the Ram tell me that Tshuva that, that Gula could come at any day 
And it also tells me it's dependent on my doing tshuva, on our doing tshuva. Maybe it won't happen then. Seems like a very strong question. <laughs> so says Rav Soloveitchik that what the Ram is really communicating to us is that the belief in Geula is ultimately the belief in ourselves. Is that we have the ability, we believe, codified belief, that we can grow out of the reality that we're in right now. We're in a non-Gula reality. How do I know? Because, let's look around. We're in a non-Gula reality. But it's a Paskin belief, says says Rosalvechik of the Rambam, that you can break out of that. That we can break out of that mold. We don't have to accept the reality as it is. What do we need to do? We need to be active participants. We need to engage in the tuba process. But if we do that, we've broken the mold. We're now, we're now to- somewhere totally, totally different. So, I think this becomes then a very critical lesson for us. Because <clears throat> what Rosalvech is telling us then, both in Chuba, in terms of in terms of fate and destiny, is we don't have to accept the reality as it is. On an individual level, on a national level, in, in sheer placements, in Chavrusa learning, in Shalom Bayis, we don't have to accept the reality as it is. We have the ability to go beyond that. We're not, we're not bound by where we are right now. And this is ultimately what Hashem wants. This is what Hashem teaches us in Pashas Truma. Don't accept the reality. Build a Mishkan. This is what Hashem teaches us in terms of the giving of the Torah. I want you to be active participants in it. I'm giving the Torah over to you so you can be an active player in it, so it can unfold based on you. Don't just accept it for where it is right now. Take it to the next level. And if we're able to do that, and we're able to you know, really internalize this idea of being active participants, of not accepting the reality as it is, well then, says Rosh that's how we bring the Gula. So I think this is something we have to really focus in and really try and take to heart. Being active participants, not just looking for the easy way out, and ultimately pushing through. Pushing through, like we said, could mean all sorts of different things. It could mean walking away from something. It could mean working within it. It could be changing my perspective on what should be. Those are all different ways to change the reality. But but I have to do something. We, we believe um, in a destiny type of outlook, not a fate type of outlook. And with that, says Rav Salvechim, we bring the Gula.